hope you liked it. Um, as the video says, uh, we've been in a series called Living Centre. Is that okay? Fantastic. We've been in a series called Living Centred. Um, we've been examining what it looks like to keep Jesus at the centre of our lives, looking at what he says about everyday issues uh, and thinking about the difference he can make to us. Um, I'm going to be continuing today by looking at the topic of worry and anxiety, and I'm going to start by reading from the Bible, the next part along from last week. So Matthew 6, 25 to 34. It says, Do not worry. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much, are you, <clears throat> are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass, of the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, which is an old word, just means people who don't know God, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Great. Well, I'm really pleased to be able to speak here today. Um, I've really enjoyed this series. Uh, I've been encouraged to live more and more centered on the hope and promises that we have in Jesus Christ. The great thing about this series for me is that as soon as I leave church on a Sunday, life happens, and I'm met with challenges that directly re relate to what we've been learning. Will I stay centered on God? Will I hear what he's saying? Will I hear his promptings? And when I do, will I respond? Or how will I respond? For me, this can be as simple as uh, choosing to pray during a quiet moment in the day rather than checking football transfer rumours on BBC Sport again. Um, or, probably more pressing, is that it can be trusting God or letting the looming threat of a new school year grow bigger and bigger in my thinking such that today is governed by what may or may not happen tomorrow. Will I centre on Jesus? Because what we think about becomes bigger in our minds. What we think about becomes bigger in our minds. So from the outset, there's a real grounding of encouragement that God wants to bring us. Because today, we can bring the reality of God's love, care, and provision into our lives by dwelling on him, making him big in our minds. As Mike said right at the start, Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In simple terms for people like me, remember I am good. Remember God is good. He wants people to find security, significance, and acceptance, and he wants them to find it in him. He is a rock and a foundation that provides the blueprint for our lives. But I've been challenged by what we've been learning, the life that God wants me to live, loving enemies, maintaining integrity in everything. Tough stuff, and I can't do this through effort alone. But God would encourage us that he is with us. Um, I've been reminded again that I'm on a journey. The Bible has great things to say about journeys. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in me is going to carry it on to completion. What a privilege. Forgiven before God, counted in his family. The assurance of eternal life is mine. Yet I have a heavenly father who is also in this for the long haul. He knows that I need him to be as well. As I seek the reality of bringing this hope into my life, I've got to remember that. So it's this that we must dwell on, and I'm therefore confident I'm encouraged and will be encouraged as I talk about the 
the topic of worry and anxiety today. So it's good news. So it leads us on to worry, which is great. Um, so I did some research into some of the top worries. I found a nice handy list of top 20 worries in the UK. Uh, a lot of them can be grouped into certain categories. I wonder if anyone could have a hazard a guess to some of the top worries that people may encounter within the UK. Yes. Money. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Money is a massive worry in people's lives. Okay. Money, finance, job, rent, credit cards. Really similar to what was said all those years ago in the Bible. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Sounds familiar. Common issues. It's all, I put this picture in the middle. How am I going to keep my head above water, my family's head above water? Next one. Um, comes, when it comes up on the screen, things to do with appearance, age, getting old, looking old, feeling old, dying. What will we wear? Really similar to what was said in the Bible. It sounds familiar again. Some statistics on this. I found out that in 2010, people in the UK spent £2.3 billion on cosmetic procedures. Billion pounds. Now, this figure is rise, has risen every year, most sharply in men. How do I look? Um, <laughs> interestingly, actually, the year before, £5 million of this was taken out on loans. So actually, we're willing to produce a secondary worry to, to counter the effects of a first one. It's like, this can't be what we were designed to live for. This can't be what we are chasing after or running after. For one, it's a losing battle. A year of a baby gets a few more wrinkles on your head. It happens. But of course, we are to take care of our bodies, of course. And it's so easy to fall into this trap, this area of worry. When I was at university, I, I spent the first year and a half wearing a hat in every situation. I'd probably take it off for Christmas dinner or a wedding, but pretty much I wore a hat. Now, it was a hat very similar to I'm not going to put it on now, but you must hear me clearly on this. I looked very, very cool. <laughs> uh, one of the things that attract, first attracted Catherine to me, um, grew the hair slightly, a little bit of hair out the back, good look. However, <laughs> however, this hat represented more than just wearing a hat. It was actually a case of me controlling what I looked like. Actually, I could control exactly what people saw and how they saw me to the point where it became a bit of a security blanket. I didn't want to take this off because I knew that I felt quite cool and quite safe. My appearance was as I wanted it to be with this. It was actually in a small group about a year and a half into uni. Uh, I was wearing my hat, and it was a small group through the church here. And some people were praying for me that I would uh, know more of God's love. And what someone said to me was, God is saying to you, take your hat off. Take your hat off. Now, it was a cold night, so it's perfectly fine for me to wear a hat on that occasion. However... What God was saying was, I see you, I know you, I know everything about you, take your hat off, you don't have to hide, you don't have to worry, take it off. And I did, and I took it off there, and it was a big moment in my life. So I, I, I can be sure that God will be saying to some people within this area of worry, I see you, I know you, take your hat off, come and let me work with you. Um, next one, family, friendship, relationship, partners, how people see us, how we're perceived. A massive one for me. Absolutely massive. I absolutely love getting on with people. I love encouraging people. And I, I hate it when I've upset them or I think I have. And I worry about it. Last term at work, I took a really simple message for a colleague um, so that uh, the, the visitors they were expecting would be in reception. And uh, they would need to go and meet them there. And I delivered that message on my way out. And from nowhere, I found myself, I guess, on the receiving end of a, a torrent of built-up frustration. Um, it was really random, and, um, but the magnitude of the response that I received caused me a huge amount of worry. 
and I apologise for any misunderstanding, but still it played on my mind. Um, what had I said? Was it my tone? I must have been rude. Blimey, what are my colleagues going to think? Have I blown this for God? Now, Catherine identifies these things immediately when I get home. One word answers and not really interested in uh, topics to do with food and things like that are a real indicator that something's <laughs> going on. And she prized it out of me. And said, actually, there is something on my mind. And it was dealt with, and whether I was right or wrong is not the issue. The issue was the worry and the way that it was rolling around in my head. But I needed to look to God for reassurance in that. I haven't messed up God's plans. God is in control. Whether I'm right or wrong, a gentle answer is the way to go. I need to let it go, say sorry where I've, where I've messed up if I have, and pray, pray for the situation, take it to God. The other thing about worry, it often has the effect of silencing us. It makes us look inwards, not out, not up to God. Because voicing worries is therefore so important. It's not a weakness to seek the God who can actually do something about it. And interestingly for me, it showed me that a lot of my worth was being placed in, albeit I wanted to get on with people and show God, but a lot of my value and worth was, was based in actually how well am I getting on with people? Am I being a good, a good guy? Um, rather than first of all being centered on what God says about me. And finally, the final group, I didn't know where to put this one, um, keeping the house clean was on there. Um, I guess we would say each to his own in that regard. Um, but we put the breakfast and stuff away, didn't we? Great. Fantastic. So, worry is a common threat. It doesn't always strike in the, in the same way. I think it can creep up, up on us slowly, or it can hit us in the face. But it does happen. It happens when we look out at uncertainty, and we see nothing but the problems we face and our own lacking resources. When we're dwelling on circumstances and not God. Now, the potential to worry is really deep-rooted, and actually sources of worry are inevitable. Verse 34 says, each day has enough trouble of its own. So whether you're a Christian or not, we're dealing with a shared problem, an issue that is common to all people. So I think there's two areas that we can think wrong on this. First of all, I think we're wrong to think that we're immune to it and that, we, um, and, yeah, and that it won't affect us. But we're just as wrong, in light of what the Bible says, to see it as an inevitability that we live with that either lingers or rears its head in certain situations when we're squeezed when my energy or capacity are particularly stretched. So what does Jesus say about worry? Jesus is really clear. He says, do not worry. Great. Um, that means that for me, I need to do some thinking about it because as I've shared, worry is a problem that we face. So I want to do this by sharing two stories. The picture on the left is the best one that I could do to depict a story that my parents very proudly tell of me as a child as a toddler, in fact. Now, my dad is a nurse, and on this one occasion, I was volunteered to be par a participant in some kind of paediatric development study. Now, I don't know how many times I was a subject in various studies and what type of study I was involved in as a child. I probably blocked them out, but this particular one is told around the dinner table. I believe it was things like putting blocks on blocks and getting things out of various uh, tubs and buckets that you couldn't see, and various things that developmental stages that they show in children. So I, as the story goes, pr proudly told by my mum and dad, I was prompted by questions like, could you do this, Matthew, or could you try and do this? And I responded by saying, no, but I can do this. <laughs> and perceiving, I guess, the circle of parents and toddlers as some kind of theatre in the round made for me, some kind of amphitheatre, I did what all self-respecting boys would do, bum up in the air, God in the middle, dance for the crowd. <laughs> Not an ounce of worry. I can also remember a story involving dolphins, and this was on holiday. 
probably somewhere like Flamingoland in Scarborough, and I would have been about five or six years old. Now, the dolphins were doing their thing, jumping through hoops, somersaulting, and there came a point when they needed a volunteer to work with the dolphins, and they needed someone in a blue jumper. I looked down. It's a blue jumper, a knitted blue jumper, one of those ones that you probably wear at the end of your holiday because you run out of clothes and nothing else, but a blue jumper nonetheless. <laughs> Hand in the air. I'm chosen. I'm called out of the crowd when suddenly I don't want to go and I actually can't get any further back in my seat. There's encouragement from my parents. There is encouragement from the crowd. The guys on the wetsuits, they're saying, come on, come down. The dolphins, they're not saying anything. They're dolphins, okay? <laughs> but suddenly, I don't want to go. And they pick someone else out of the crowd. And I remember, uh, to this day, I can remember this boy being pulled in this dinghy in the pool of water with the dolphins, glee on his face, the wake of the water just looking so fast, pulled by dolphins, okay? His jumper wasn't even as blue as mine, blue flex at best. <laughs> but something had changed, or something was different in that circumstance. Now, I don't want you to worry. Two things. One, I've reconciled with dolphins. Two, I've since been able to demonstrate my innate lack of rhythm and continue to do that throughout my life. But I think this really does show something of the battle we face as humans. If I'm told not to worry, I need to understand why I do. How can I be the dancing baby one minute and paralyzed by worry the next? Why am I at school as a teacher now, one day thinking, I can change the world, bring the behavior problems to me, when the next minute I'm thinking, have I got, even got the strength or energy to teach another lesson? Why do I think to myself, right, I'll sit down and pray to God, but then I think, actually, I'll just check my internet banking first in this quiet moment. Jesus doesn't want us to live this way. Jesus doesn't want us to live this way. But humans, we are confronted with a conflict one that creates worry. On this one hand, we have the, the tendency or condition to go it alone, as I've described. We want to look after ourselves to be self-sufficient. The Bible says that this desire to be in charge is the basis for our ultimate need, forgiveness of sins and being right with God. God has wanted to walk in step with us, but we have chosen our own paths. Worry is a great example of the after effects of this. It's massively short of what God wants for our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. We do things our own way. We rely on ourselves. We work harder. We worry in the face of our shortcomings. Then we quickly cover them up and try even harder. One thing that I can be sure about, though, is that life is really hard. And or even though I know that I can become a master of covering up my shortcomings, life and circumstances will show them up. So on the one hand, I choose to go it alone. But on the other hand, all people have this defining need to feel security, acceptance, and significance. We, need to, we have a need to feel secure. Is everything safe? Is everything in order? Where do I find my identity? An interesting question for me on this topic is, if my job and my prospects went, what would I be left with? Am I secure? We want to feel accepted. Am I worthy? Am I good enough? Am I loved? And we have a real need to feel significant. Am I significant? Does my life count? Can I make a difference? Now, these things lie behind the worries that I've shared. The problem is not with the needs, the human needs, but in the inevitable conflict that arises when I'm relying myself to meet the needs, and I can't do it all of the time. Jesus used the examples of food and drink, saying that people at the time who didn't know God, they were running after these things. Now, at the time, the listeners didn't have the luxury of nipping to Audi after the sermon. Commentaries will tell you, I think that was 20, 30 years later, that moved into the area. 
But Jesus was talking about the things that occupied their minds, the source of their motivation. What were they running after? Albeit quite logically. Remember, verse 32 says, God knows that we need these things. But Jesus was getting to the heart of the issue, challenging the core values of people listening. Where was their treasure? What were they relying on? What were they building their lives on? So what are we living for? Who or what are we relying on? Do we find ourselves preoccupied with what we have to do or should do? I know that I do. Do we find ourselves preoccupied with worries of money, clothes, ambition, appearance, acquiring stuff and things and acceptance from others? I wonder if anyone's thought, oh, I'll be satisfied with the next promotion or that next house. That'll be enough. Or my family will know how well I've done if, when I get that new car, when they see it. Or how about things like grades and qualifications? Great to fall back on, not so great to build an identity and a life on. Now, the source of these desires are normal. They're not wrong in themselves. God does know what we need. It says it in the Bible. He made us to seek after safety and security, to want things to be okay and as they should be. It's normal to want to be accepted for who you are. And doesn't everyone want to be part of something important for their life to be significant? But the problem comes when what we can do or have or become becomes the preoccupation in our search for security, significance, and acceptance. It's when we focus, on, um, it's the preoccupation and reliance on ourselves for these needs that's the, that is the problem, rather than seeking the God, the creator, the one that, who can ultimately satisfy our needs and bring about a lasting security. I'm passionate that it's this that God wants, to free, uh, wants us to free us from. God wants to lift the burden of worrying what others will think. That will always change. To remove the burden of self-reliance, I may do many, many things well, but my shortcomings are vast. He calls us to take our eyes off ourselves and look up to the unchanging one, that who we can build our lives on. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because when you're aware of your need for Jesus, you look at yourself and you realize that you've reached the end of what you can do on your own. You're left looking up at your father in heaven in reliance and faith that he will come through. I take my eyes off myself and I look up to God who can do something about it. So the good news is that we can trust in both the goodness and the common sense of God. Jesus uses the images of the birds and the flowers to describe God's care for us. He appeals to both our common sense and our emotions in relation to this. Verse 27 says, Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? The obvious answer is no. There is a reality that we waste hours dwelling on worries, playing scenarios and possible outcomes round and round in our head. And often the thing that we're worrying about doesn't even occur. And if it does, we will have to have worried about it twice anyway. Jesus is not promising a trouble-free life, some kind of float through life. Stepping outside and my car not starting will put pay to that. Birds die, flowers get trampled on. But the Bible is clear on this. Verse 34 says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Life happens. We only need to look and think about and dwell on the news for a moment to know this. Bob Marley's don't worry about a thing philosophy doesn't cut the mustard in the reality of day-to-day living. But indeed, and this is important, was the reality of the cross not looming over Jesus as he was challenging the aspirations and the focus of those listening? The one who is telling us to look to God knows what he is talking about. What Jesus is saying is, look at God for your source of hope, for he is unchanging. He is certain when circumstances are uncertain. Now, if we're honest, this does raise a question, and it does for me, and I'll look at it really briefly. 
Because many people would look at hugely difficult and challenging circumstances and ask, well, where is God? How can we trust him? You may be someone who's asked or asks that same question. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was looking ahead to his own moment of unimaginable trouble, his death, and all that that entailed. Jesus asked similar questions of God as he was filled with sorrow. He asked similar questions of God the Father, but God was in it, and he held him through it all the way through to his glorious resurrection. I have to dwell on this when these questions enter my thinking because I'm actually left thinking, how can I not trust in a God? The alternative is a sea of worry and hopelessness. And for the Christian, the beauty is that we can tell our own story and testimony of where God has provided materially, he's brought peace, which has simply held us, held us or given us the strength to hold on. Because faith and hope in God is the opposite of worry. And it's, circumstance, well, it's in circumstances that are worrying that our faith becomes most, import, most important. And in this, that sense, we must return to where we began, reminding ourselves of our Father in heaven who we believe in, with the same care and intricacy that the flowers of the field are adorned. He's a heavenly Father who knows us and cares for us. We may not understand what is happening, but we trust a sovereign God who is in control. One thing I like to do with my son Isaac, I put him in the hallway. and We've not got a huge house, but there's a few options as, w- as to where he can go. He can head for the bin in the kitchen, he can head for the dangerous doorstep in the dining room, or he can head for the telly. Dangerous for me, okay? Now, in terms of that, he will just make a choice and he'll be off. But after about f- five meters of crawling, he will turn round to see that I'm still there, or if Catherine is still there. Now, in this same way, in circumstances that we find ourselves in, we must presume upon, upon the presence of God. We must presume upon God being with us in all circumstances. I can't but be with him. I'm his dad. God is a far better father than me, and he gave us life. Psalm 56 says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. We must presume upon God being with us. So, as we reach the end, how can we work this out in our lives? Where do I look when faced with worry? Because the reality is that for many of us, we won't be too far from this room before this becomes a challenge. Jesus is the prevention and the cure for our worry. He's the prevention and he's the cure, the antidote for our worry. Verse 33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Righteousness means being right with God. And I used to confuse seeking righteousness with doing better and being better itself another source of worry. I actually missed the starting point, and it's, but it's really easy to do. So where do I find righteousness? If I'm told to seek for it, where do I find it? I find righteousness when I find Jesus, who was perfect for me. I find righteousness when I find Jesus, and I'm humbled by my failings and his glorious death on the cross. I find righteousness when I get met again with my desperate need for his love and his acceptance, and I receive his mercy and grace. It is belief in Jesus' death and resurrection that declares us forgiven from all the wrong things we'll, we've done and will do. It provides the security of eternal life. It sees us accepted as a child of God, and it calls us significant to a God who has plans for our lives. Jesus has won this, opening the way to our Heavenly Father, who can meet our deepest needs. So as the reality of this impresses on us, we're empowered to live right with God. So I urge us to seek God's kingdom, as it says, out of this place. And seeking God's kingdoms means to put him in charge of our lives, our hopes and our desires, to let him reign. 
It means the desire above anything else to see God in action in each part of our life and in the world around us. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want to see a piece of you. I want to see you in action. Now, we all have our own kingdoms. I choose what to wear in the morning. Catherine tells me it doesn't match, and I choose to go and change it. We also have a choice as to what we study, the job that we do, how we spend our money, what we dream of becoming, how we spend our time. Now, these are all things that we can choose. But when our core motivations and energy are rooted in what we want to do, when we set the course, when our ambitions drive our decision-making and our outlook on life, when we know best, we shut down God's reign in our life. The two don't, the two don't work together. When I'm gripping so tightly to what I want to do, there's no way that I can pick up what God wants or what God has for me. When I'm running the show, I only have myself to rely on. And sooner or later, I'm sprinting, I'm juggling, and I'm spinning plates, and I'm worrying because my need for security, acceptance, and significance is on shaky foundations. God made us who we are. He's in it for the long haul. He wants to be in the thick of the action. He wants to take our needs, our dreams, ambitions, and entrust them to him. My experience as we line those two things up, my kingdom and God's, and I give it to him, is that some things fade away. They're not important anymore. Some things are put aside for another time, and some things are multiplied, and God uses them as if they've actually found their home where they're always meant to be with, with him. We look back on key decisions in my life where I've let God in, like marriage and, and money and jobs, and I see that he is trustworthy, like he says. He knows I need all these things. When we decided it right for Catherine to train to be a teacher, um, we had been out of university for a couple of years, so we'd got used to some of the luxury and luxuries in life, like eating, eating vegetables, and we weren't too keen on compromising some of those things. We faced an obvious and significant drop in income. Um, but just before the September, our landlords, who are wonderful people, they don't come to church, they knocked on the door and they said, we really want to support you both this year as best as we can take 25 pounds off the rent for the next year. Now, we were good tenants, but not that good. It's a story of a good, trustworthy God. So when God is in charge, it is good for us. When God is in charge, it is good for us. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, that's Jesus, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace and joy can be ours. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, and it's a very well-known verse, but it's worth hearing it again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Seeking God's kingdom brings a peace that doesn't make sense. It defies circumstance and worry. It is from God. It is a peace that is found in a person whose security, acceptance, and significance is built on Jesus Christ not themselves. It's built on God, not Matt Wood. This well-known verse, it shows a practice that is so good for us. Get with your small group, with people you trust. Voice your circumstances. Don't let things build up. Be proactive. Voice your worries. Use them as a sign that this isn't God's best for you. Be weak so that God can be strong. As we pray, we must have faith that God can and he does provide. He can and ch change circumstances and mend relationships and all the things that we can worry about. But we also must remember that his love and goodness remains even when circumstances don't appear to be changing. So finishing off, we have a battle and a choice. It's an ongoing battle as we seek God's kingdom. 
in this area of worry. There are endless circumstances that can shake us. And what I said at the start was that what we dwell on becomes bigger in our thinking. And worry, therefore, takes hold when we lose sight of Jesus and our Heavenly Father, whom we can trust, who can sustain us through troubles. We must, therefore, continue to make God and his promises big as everything looks small in comparison to him. Our God promises that in all things he works for the good of those who love him. When the list of things that I have to do exceeds the breadth of my shoulders, I trust that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He tells me not to worry, but when I do, I find grace. And he says, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for us. When I'm aware of my weakness, God says, his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in weakness. When I feel rejected, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when death and tragedy comes close, I need God's grace to cling on to the hope of eternal life and let my perspective change to dwell on a heaven where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So to finish, I've looked at this real problem of worry in light of our needs for security, acceptance and significance. I've looked at how we can't meet these needs ourselves. We're left unsatisfied at, at risk of anxiety and worry. But we've then dwelt on Jesus, who made us right with our Father God, who does want to meet our needs. And I urge us, therefore, to first dwell on God, who understands and is with us in the circumstances we face, a God who wants to bring a peace that doesn't make sense. So, if God is a God of peace, we can expect him to demonstrate that. And I trust that God does want to meet us um, both now and in the coming days in relation to this area. So I specifically want to encourage two types of people, or a couple of people, and then I'll pray, and then we'd love to chat or pray there'll be people here at the end. So if you're a visitor here, um, I hope that I've touched on an area that is really common to us all. Um, so I'd ask you to speak to whoever you came with and see actually how do they deal with, how do they deal with uh, worries in their life? What difference does God make? And do you ask them, do you see something of this peace in their life? But also, I want to encourage people who would feel that worry is a big part of their life. And I would say, this isn't what God wants, but he's with you. It might be someone who's worried about something specific. We want to stand with you. Or people who regularly battle with worry and anxiety. The Bible says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God's shoulders are big enough for the situations that you face and the worry that you are carrying. Great, so I pray. Dear Lord God, Father in heaven, thank you so much that your shoulders are big enough. And I pray in Jesus' name that your peace would settle as we bring our weaknesses to you in trust of your great strength. Amen. Um, I think Matt's served us so well. So much in there to take hold of. So yeah, let's give him a clap.